We continue this morning in the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 11. And this morning, Jesus has accepted an invitation to go to a house where the Pharisees are. Uh, There are Pharisees there. There's lawyers there. These are the religious leaders. Now, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, he has been going for three and a half years, more or less. He is mere weeks away from making his final journey to Jerusalem to be crucified. So this is at the close of his ministry. This is at the end. This is after all the miracles, all the signs, all the things that he has done. His ministry is public. It hasn't been done in a corner. It's been done where everyone can see, everyone can observe. He has made his way from the Galilean region to the north and has made his way now down to the south and is around Jerusalem. He's in Judea. And so he's down there and he's doing miracles there as well. You will recall his most recent miracle in the chapter 11 here was to give the deaf, the mute man, the ability to speak. And the people are all amazed But there's an element who are like, well, don't get too excited. This guy only does miracles by the power of the devil, which is a pretty amazing accusation to make. And the people making that accusation, by the way, the chief promoters of that accusation are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of people who started in the intertestament period between uh, after they're dragged off to Babylon... You know, Jeremiah, Daniel, that that book, they're in there for 70 years. They come back, and under Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah builds the wall, Ezra helps them rebuild the temple, and then it kind of what we often refer to as the 400 silent years. They're not really all that silent. You can read all kinds of stuff, but God does not speak to his people until the arrival of John the Baptist. During that intertestament period, they finally get over their idolatry. And a group of folks arise who want to be separate. They see themselves as the separatists. We are going to be above and beyond the common people, and we are going to separate ourselves unto God. Did they start out sincere? Probably. You want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Do they end up sincere? Uh, Not so much. The Hebrew word for separate is where we get the word Pharisee. They become the Pharisees. They are the separate ones. They are slightly better than everyone else, don't you know? And if you don't know, they'll be more than happy to inform you. And by the time of Jesus, there's about 6,000 of them. They're members of the Sanhedrin. They're part of the leadership of the nation. And they are preventing Jesus from really carrying out nationwide repentance. They're right on top of that and making sure that doesn't happen. This particular instance that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus gets done speaking and a Pharisee asks him to have lunch with him. Come over to my place and have lunch. This is one of the main meals. They didn't really do breakfast. They did kind of a a big lunch and maybe just a smaller supper. And so this is a group of people now, the Pharisees, who have they, they have a hostile relationship with Jesus. They're kind of upfront about that. There's no repentance on their part. They're not repenting. John has preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has preached it. His disciples have preached it. The Pharisees have just kind of, they're not repenting. There's no repentance. They're just, no. But 
Jesus does get a following. Jesus can do miracles. They can't do miracles. Every time Jesus speaks, he just crowds. And if he starts healing, it's astounding the number of people who all want to come and, and listen to Jesus. So I think the Pharisee here, he's working at trying to, um, let's, get, let's get a bead on who Jesus is. These are guys, the Pharisees, um, you know the Pharisees, right? I mean, but just to be clear, they have a problem, and their problem is they think that the way to follow God is to just outwardly do certain things. They're not priests, remember. They're not part of the tribe of Levi. The law is not something to lead them to God through faith. The law is something for them to do. You need to do the law. You need to dress right, walk right, talk right. You need to make sure that you're wearing the right articles of clothing. You need to make sure that your hair is cut just a particular way. They want to make sure that, that you've always got certain things and ceremonies that you're doing. But what you don't need to do is repent. They don't need to repent. They're convinced that one of the signs of the true Messiah, how will we know the true Messiah? Well, when he shows up, he'll love us. That's, that's what they're thinking. When he shows up, he'll, he'll clearly be the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He'll be the most Pharisaical one among us. He won't condemn us. He'll think that what we're doing is just the greatest thing ever. Uh, yeah, no, not so much, right? Jesus actually shows up and reserves his worst condemnation for this group of people. Their problem is they are convinced that they rightly represent God. They lead the nation. They tell the nation that we are the ones who know the law of Moses better than anyone else. We're the ones that live the law of Moses better than anyone else. And we are absolutely certain that when we speak, we speak for God. If you want to get close to God, act like us. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is going to accept this invitation and why he's going to go and speak with them. I... I think it's very unlikely that they have invited Jesus there so that they can hear what he has to say so they can repent. That's really not the agenda here. We know that they're already against Jesus. They're already opposed to what he's doing. They're the ones, the chief ones, whispering, yeah, he does miracles, but he just does them by the power of the devil. So they invite him over for dinner. Why? You can't ignore him. You must do something about Jesus. Uh, you've you've got you to get him over there and you've got to either embarrass him or find something that he does wrong or somehow you've got you've to get the goods on Jesus. So let's get him over here and we'll all be, it'll just be him and it'll be all of us and surely we can catch him in his words or trap him or something. Jesus comes through the door knowing but this is what's going on. I mean, Jesus knows what's happening. He's not, he's not taking him by surprise. He, he knows how this is all going to go. Um, they need to hear the truth. Jesus is no respecter of persons. Even though they are not right with God and they're nowhere near as close to God as they think they are, the fact is that Jesus goes to them to give them the truth because they need to hear the truth. If they don't hear the truth soon, they are going to shortly find themselves standing right next to the rich man and lifting up their eyes being in hell and seeing Abraham afar off. 
I mean, that's their certain fate if they don't repent. So Jesus goes to them. He loves them just as much as he loves the tax collectors and the immoral people and all the other sinners. He's going to go to them to graciously, one more time, try to give them the truth. Jesus is about truth. Jesus is also about peace, love, harmony, uh, unity. We might, if we're not careful, you might kind of look at Jesus and go, now let's see, we got this guy, he's wearing a robe, sandals, beard, talking about love and peace, and uh, no, is he kind of a hippie kind of figure here? You know, I mean, uh, Jesus wouldn't offend anybody, would he? I mean, he wouldn't actually say anything that would upset anybody, would he? I mean, Jesus is trying to get along with everyone, right? I mean, isn't that what's happening here? Isn't, isn't Jesus someone who wouldn't deliberately go out of his way to offend people? <clears throat> well, if you're tempted to think that, you may want to pay very close attention to what we're about to go through here because what happens is that Jesus walks into this group of people. He walks into this Pharisee's house, and before he puts one morsel of food into his mouth, He offends everybody in the place. And he does it deliberately. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He walks in there and goes right over to the table and reclines and doesn't ceremonially wash his hands. (gasps) Can you imagine? If, if If you know anything about the Jewish people today, uh, if they're going to pray, the men... You know, they wear their little, what, yarmulke, right? Isn't that what they call that thing? They, they you know, you, you, you cover your head. Well, imagine showing up at a Jewish prayer meeting with no head covering. <gasps> what are you doing here? You know, I mean, this, this, isn't, this isn't what you do. This is offensive. Uh, the washing of the hands, by the way, this doesn't have anything to do with, with actual hygiene, right? This, this is just we're ceremonially wiping off the... the spiritual dirt of the world. They're up front about that. This is completely ceremonial. This is, this is not like we're actually trying to get our hands cleaned. They had a specific prescribed amount of water that they would, they would take and they would get it in their hands and they would put it on their fingertips and it would run down and, and then they would take hand sanitizer and they would rub that and they would make sure that they maintained their six foot of distance before they took their mask off and, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, my mixing up my pharisaical rituals. Um, so they did this just for show. That's all. This was just to make everybody think, oh, how amazingly righteous they were. Um, so what does Jesus do? Jesus walks in there and doesn't do it. There's nowhere in the Old Testament, by the way, that says you need to wash your hands before you eat. You probably should wash your hands before you eat. It's not a bad idea, but it's not the law of Moses. So Jesus goes in there and he immediately completely ignores their tradition. No one, if you're going to be close with God, and by the way, for sure they are close with God, no one is going to be close with God without washing their hands before they eat, ceremonially. So Jesus walks in and doesn't do that. Why? Aren't we supposed to be peacemakers? I mean, aren't we supposed to avoid controversy and strife and we just go along to get along? You know, don't stir the water, don't ruffle people's feathers. Be smooth, right? Non-confrontational. Seeker-sensitive, you know? Uh, 
come on, Jesus, can't you just wash your hands once? I mean, just go in there and wash your hands. I mean, what, what do you got to, you always got to go in there and uh, why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because these are unrepentant sinners that are on their way to hell. And if he doesn't help them figure that out, they're all going to perish. It is not loving for Jesus to simply go in there and, and, and assage their guilt or, or to just go along with them. Well, I know what you're all doing is wrong, but I don't, I don't want to rock the boat. Oh, no, Jesus rocked the boat. Now, I don't think he does this with anger. I, I don't think he's sarcastic. I don't, I don't think there's any kind of condescension here. I think Jesus just goes in and deliberately walks by the little water bowl there and goes over to the table and, and reclines. Probably bends over and grabs something. But everyone in the room is, is shocked. They don't say anything. I mean, it, you know, it, he'd spoken to the Pharisee who asked him to lunch, and he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, verse 38, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed his hands. How, how could this be a holy man? How can this be a man who says he speaks for God? How can he say that he's, he's a representative of God and he didn't even wash his hands? Look at that. Uh, the Pharisee, they, they don't actually say that. In fact, they don't say anything. They just look at him. And Jesus says this. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Jesus is being reasonable. He is trying to help them think through their position, which is untenable. This idea that somehow if you just clean the outside, that's going to get the job done. It's not going to get the job done. You can't just clean the outside. You need to clean the inside. Simply performing ceremonies and trying to somehow think that the ceremonial purification is going to actually make you right on the inside is just wrong. And if you're thinking, well, these are basically good people, uh, let me read to you what Jesus says to them in Matthew. He kind of elaborates a little here in Matthew 23. Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, what? That's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple which sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But he who swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sacrifices the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and he who sits on it. The Pharisees were the kind of people who would make a deal with you. And they would make this deal and they would say, oh, I swear by the temple. And you're like, well, okay, I mean, the Pharisees, that seems good. All right, so you make whatever deal it is. And then they don't carry out their half of the bargain. You're like, hey, we had a deal. <laughs> no, no. If I'd have swore by the gold of the temple, then we'd have had a deal, but we didn't have a deal. 
What are the consequences of that? They're terrible for you. And they don't feel any guilt at all. Oh, they swore by the altar. But, it, you know, it's like your fingers crossed behind your back, right? I mean, that, no. Swearing by the altar doesn't mean anything. Now, if you swear by the offering on the altar, that's got value. And Jesus is looking at him like, what is, what is wrong with you guys? These are guys who would sit there and lie to your face and not feel guilty about it at all. Why? Well, I only swear by the temple. I didn't swear by the gold in the temple. Can you imagine trying to do business with these people? Can you imagine trying to, trying to conduct any kind of business with these folks? I, talk about lying, two-faced, stab you in the back, and when the consequences are horrific to you. Thank you. They didn't care. This is why Jesus says to them, all you did was wash the outside, but you didn't take care of the inside. Don't you understand that the God who made your outside made your insides too? You don't just need to be clean on the outside. You need to actually be clean on the inside. These are people who are perfectly willing to rob you blind because they swore by the temple, not the gold. These, these are people who lied to you. This is why when you read the book of James and James says, swear not. Don't let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. Let's not get into all of this twisting around here. And, and we had to put you under oath and we had to make sure the oath we put you under is one that will actually hold you. It's like, just tell the truth, will you? Why did James say that? These guys right here. They've seen the miracles of Jesus for three years. They have come to a deliberate decision that... That they're not going to repent. They don't care about repenting. Repentance is not part of what they're doing. They are righteous without repenting. Their outward ceremonial traditions make them righteous. Paul says to them in Romans 9, to them, what, what do we say? You realize the, the Gentiles who did not actually pursue righteousness have, have attained righteousness. The righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, and you guys, you pursue the law of righteousness, but you don't arrive at that law. Why? Because you didn't pursue it by faith. You pursue it by works. You stumble over this. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. You somehow thought that the law of Moses would actually get you right with God. It doesn't. The law of Moses is to drive you to your knees so that you will actually come to God and say, I can't do this. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I, this is not working. It doesn't matter how many bulls and goats I, I slaughter here. I, this isn't taking away my sin. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes. And so you need to come to God by faith. No bulls, no goats are ever going to get this job done. Not them, not the Pharisees. They, they think that their sacrifices and that their ceremonies and their traditions are going to get the job done. Don't you understand the one who made the outside of the cup made the inside too? So then he says in verse 41, he gives them the truth. Look, give that which is within as charity and then everything will be clean for you. You've got to deal with the inside You've got to start working on the inside. This righteousness comes from within and then works its way out. And it only comes from within by God. You can't simply do... Here's, here's an example. Verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees. Whoa. I mean, this is like so sad. 
This is just sad. You pay tithe of mint and rue and every little garden herb, you know? All those, all the little herbs. You just, they're just tiny little plants in your window box. Oh, but you make sure and cut, you know, just a tenth of however much that is. And yet you disregard justice and, love, and the love of God. These are things which you should have done, justice and the love of God, without neglecting the others. It's not that you shouldn't tithe under the old covenant. You should. That was an important. It was the law of Moses. And if you want to get down to tithing of the little thing in your window box, fine. But don't think that because you do that, you can now ignore the love of God or doing justice. These guys were evil. They were not good guys. Jesus was nothing but kind and loving and was healing people and preaching the truth and watching over the poor, making the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. I mean, who, who in the world could be against this guy? Ah, this is what John says, John 12. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The Pharisees deliberately set out the original cancel culture. Here they are. You profess Jesus, we're canceling your Twitter account. You're not going to be able to post on Facebook anymore. You can't come down to the synagogue. And believe me, that was worse than Facebook and Twitter. That was even worse. If you were no longer a member of the synagogue, you were out of the community. If you were excommunicated from the synagogue and you had a business, don't expect a whole pile of Jewish folks to come do, uh, visit your business or to do business with you. You were now an outcast. You were a social outcast. The Pharisees deliberately set out anyone who professes. Remember the, remember the guy born blind? And Jesus gives him sight. And remember, they bring him in and they're like, what, what are you doing carrying your bed, you know? Uh, oh, well, the guy who gave me sight told me that I should. And they're like, who is he? He said, well, I'm not really sure exactly who he was. And, and, and then, like, get his parents in here. Is this guy really born blind? They go in and they go to his parents. This guy says Jesus gave him sight. They're like, don't ask us. Don't ask us. We don't. He's of age. You... The poor guy, not only is he born blind, his own parents are throwing him under the bus. They're like, nope, we're not getting put out of the synagogue here. I mean, if we, if we confess that Jesus actually gave him sight, you're going to throw us out of the synagogue. So he's of age, ask him. This is who the Pharisees were. And by the way, they threw that guy out of the synagogue. Because he said to him, Jesus, Jesus is the one who healed me. And they're like, well, what do you think of him? Well, I don't know. Is it a, from the foundation of the world? It's like, ever been seen that a guy born blind received his sight? If this guy is not from God, who in the world would be? Which, by the way, is obvious, right? But take the Pharisees, they, no. He goes on and says to them in verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, you love the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful gatherings in the marketplace. This is who they are. Their religion and the heart of their problem is that religion was to further them. 
They weren't trying to glorify God. They were trying to glorify themselves. They only did the law of Moses because they could manipulate it to work out good for them. I'm holier than you. I have all of these traditions that I keep. I have all these things that I'm doing that draw me closer to God than you are. So I get the chief seat at the, all of the banquets. And, and I get respectful greetings in the marketplace. Oh, Rabbi so-and-so. Which, by the way, is why Jesus is like, be careful about calling one another father, right? No man is your father but God. Be careful about coveting titles, particularly in a religious context. Be careful about that. This is what they're doing. Listen again to what, Jesus, uh, what Paul says to them in Romans. Romans 10 this time. He says to them, my Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I testify they have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance to knowledge. They don't know about God's righteousness, and so they seek to establish their own righteousness. And when the moment comes, they refuse to subject themselves to the actual righteousness of God. Christ, the Messiah, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live. And if we will believe that, he will give us his righteousness and we will have it on the inside. And then it will work its way out in our lives. This is true Christianity. Pharisaicalism... These guys knew their Old Testament. They had every reason to go to Micah 6 8, a verse I'm sure most of you know, even if you may not know the reference. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the heart of, of the Old Testament. It's not like, oh, the God of the Old Testament is a mean, angry God who thunders down judgment. No, the God of the Old Testament gave them the sacrificial system to point them to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. They were to love their neighbor. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. This is the law. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. The problem is that legalism drags you away from that and allows you and drives you to live however you want and then think that somehow by doing some kind of outward little religious thing that it's going to wipe away everything you do. You heard about the guy, right? When he was a kid, he said, I went to church and, and I really wanted a bicycle, so I prayed that God would give me a bicycle. And I, I prayed every week that God would give me a bicycle. And then I started listening to what was going on at the church I was going to. And, uh, you know, I'm over here lighting candles and praying and asking God to give me a bicycle. And, and then, I, then I realized, oh, I know how this works. So the next week he went out and stole a bicycle and came back Sunday and prayed for forgiveness. That's not how it works. That is not how it works. But you might be forgiven for thinking that depending on where you go to church. There may be places that actually lead you to believe that. Okay, you remember, you want to see that in action? You want to actually see that in the Old Testament? It's plain as day. Just look at Saul. God told Saul, Samuel came to Saul and said, I want you to go out and I want you to destroy the Amalekites. Kill them all. And all of their cattle. Just annihilate them. So Saul goes out and he doesn't annihilate them. Instead, he saves the king and he brings back a bunch of the sheep and goats. And when he comes back, he's got a big smile on his face and he comes to Samuel 
And he came to Saul, and Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the commands of the Lord. I have done exactly what you asked me to do. And Samuel said to him, Really? What's this bleeding of the sheep I hear in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen. I mean, if you did what what God told you to do, you'd have wiped everything out. And instead, and, and Saul said, Well, they brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we utterly destroyed. I mean, you know, you didn't want us actually sacrificing our sheep and goats, did you? I mean, I, I got a flock over at home. I'm going to sacrifice. I, let's bring the Amalekite sheep and goats in here. We'll sacrifice them. This is not going to work. This is not how this works. In fact, Samuel will go on and say to him, do you think the Lord has as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obedience? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed the words of God than the fat of rams. Isaiah will tell the nation of Israel, stop bringing your worthless offerings anymore. Your incense, the burning of incense, is an abomination. Your new moons and your Sabbaths and your calling of assemblies, God says, "I, I can't endure your iniquity anymore. I hate your new moon. This is God speaking. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They're a burden to me. I've become weary of them. Why? Because your hands are filled with innocent blood. You're over here acting horribly. You're not administering justice. You're not looking out for the widows. You're not looking out for the orphans. You're exploiting everyone. You're crooks and robbers and thieves. And then you come and think, oh, well, but we're doing new moons and Sabbaths and offering sacrifices. So, I mean, that covers it all up, right? We, we can... Come to God on Sunday and live like the devil the other six days of the week. Uh, No, you can't. True biblical Christianity. God comes to us and says, I want you to be driven by gratitude. God pours out his love on us. God gives his own son's life for us. And what we have to do is come to God in humility and say, I am unworthy of that sacrifice. I am unworthy of the least of your grace. What were you thinking dying on my behalf? And so God pulls us to obedience by his love. We should be filled with gratitude for what God has done. That's what should drive us to want to do the right thing. Lord, I want to do what pleases you. Help me figure that out, and whatever it is, I'll do it. And I'll do it out of a heart of gratitude. Legalism is all about making me look good. I'm going to manipulate God. I'm going to be such a good person, God has to let me into heaven. After all, it's me. Look at all the stuff I've done. When I get to heaven, I'm going I'm to go up and I'm going to bang on the gates. And I'm going to say, okay, God, I did this and I did this and I did that. You can take my good works, put them right over here. Because, boy, they're sure going to outweigh any of my bad works. I'll tell you right now. I've been a good person. You have to let me into heaven. That's legalism. That's pharisaicalism. That, by the way, is the road to hell. That is not the road to heaven. That is not how this works. This is not about bringing honor and glory to ourselves. There's nothing humble about that. We are sinful, proud, self-righteous people to our core. And we need to come to God and admit it and say, Lord, I need help. You better extend grace to me or I am in serious trouble. Okay, God 
delights in that prayer. And by the way, Jesus died specifically to extend that grace. Not the Pharisees. In fact, he ends by saying to them, verse 44, Woe to you. You are like concealed tombs. And the people who walk over them are unaware of it. If you are a Pharisee, if you are someone who is obsessed with ceremonial cleanliness, you get up in the morning thinking about how to remain ceremonially clean, you spend your day carefully making sure that that you don't do anything that makes you unclean, and you have studied the law of Moses, well, the last thing you want to do is get anywhere near a dead body. Dead bodies immediately make you unclean. People who get near dead bodies, people who touch dead bodies, people who go into graveyards are unclean. And if you're unclean, you can't go to the temple. And if you can't go to the temple, you can't show everybody how righteous you are. And, uh, I mean, you know, you've got, the, you've got the long tassels at the end and you make your long prayers. And, you know, I mean, all of this, all this big show, well, you're not going to be able to show anybody if you're unclean. So you've got to stay away from all the graveyards. In fact, graveyards are clearly marked. Don't get near one, lest you be ceremonially unclean. So when Jesus says to them, you guys, you guys are like concealed tombs. You know, you're standing there, and someone says to you, oh, by the way, you're standing on somebody's grave. Okay. We're not real big with that. The Pharisees, that would have been like just completely devastating. No, I'm unclean. For how long? Weeks. I'm now out of... Oh, it's just... So when Jesus looks at them and says, you are like concealed tombs. And by the way, anybody that gets near you becomes unclean. That's what he's telling them. <clears throat> this is uh, slightly confrontational. Um, I mean, but the fact is, these people need to hear this. I don't, again, I don't think Jesus is angry. I don't, I don't think his face is all twisted up in rage. I don't... He's, you know, banging on the table. I think he's just saying this to them. He's trying to help a group of hard-headed, hard-hearted sinners wake up to their sin. And these are guys, they, come on, they knew. They knew they flat out lied to you and took advantage of you and said, well, you didn't make me swear by the gold in the temple. You think they didn't know that? Of course they knew that. They knew what rotten sinners they were. They just put on this air of righteousness. That's all. And Jesus is calling them on it. They profess to speak for God. These guys don't speak for God. They're leading people straight to the pit. In fact, Jesus will say that to them in another place. If you find a disciple, you make him twice the son of devil of yourself. Our true belief in God transforms from the inside. We are driven by a desire to live up to our calling. When you truly understand the enormity of the gospel, when it really hits you that Jesus could have just stayed in heaven and said, I'm not dying for them. Are you kidding me? I am not leaving heaven to go down there and and give up all the prerogatives of deity. I mean, angels literally worship the ground Jesus walked on. You want, me to, you want me to walk away from all of this, go down there, become entrapped in a human body, by the way, with all of the stuff that goes along with that, and then you want me to, to be hated by my own family, rejected. My nation is going to reject me. They're going to give me this 
terrible mock trial, then they're, they're going to crucify me. I'm going to die an innocent person accused of a horrific crime. You want me to do that? Exactly why am I doing this again? Oh, oh, okay. Because he loves us. Because he loves you. Jesus did this for us. I don't know about you, but glad it wasn't me asking, you know, my son. I, I have a son. I'm not real keen on giving up my son. I wouldn't be keen on dying myself. I mean, we have to look in our own hearts. Jesus voluntarily gave up deity to come down here and to die for us. And our heart's cry should be, okay, Lord, I want to serve you. I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I don't, I, I don't want to act like them. This is not a bargain. This is not a deal. This is not some attempt to make myself look holy and righteous and be esteemed in everyone's eyes. In fact, if people really knew who I was, this is before God, mercy, grace, compassion. That's true Christianity. And the Pharisees needed to hear it. And and let's face it, Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus was. Jesus loved his neighbor to the point of death. This is why when he says to them, you only get one more sign, and that will be the sign of Jonah the prophet. As he was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, and the belly of the whale, or the great fish, so Jesus will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. The resurrection of Jesus should have stopped these guys in their tracks. They should have gone... I think he actually was our Messiah. One can only hope some of them did. I hope some of them did. Oh, that all of them had. This should stop all of us. And we should come to God with humility and beg his, his grace. That's the gospel. It should drive us to live for God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazingly great God that you are. Who are we that you would give your son's life for us? Who are we that Jesus would volunteer to come down here and to live this perfect, sinless life and allow himself to be falsely accused and to just, as a sheep before his shearer, say nothing? To just allow these truly wicked people accuse him of crimes they knew were false and turn him over to the Romans and demand to be crucified. And he willingly went along for us. For us. Lord, may that truly change our hearts. May we desire to lead lives in a way that will be worthy of that. We can't attain that. We, we, we can't really do that. But we can be driven to strive from gratitude to serve you. Thank you, Lord, for how great you are. Thank you for paying attention to us, hearing our prayers, giving us your word and the assembly. May we faithfully strive to serve you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.